And that's what we've been talking about through this series we've been going through called Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And so we're going to be continuing to talk about that today and the implications that it has for our faith. And so I'd start by telling you in August of 2014, a research project was sponsored by the McClellan Foundation, and it surveyed over 2,500 U.S. adults. The purpose of the research was this to discover the perception of people of faith and religion in America. Now, the research showed that when it comes to the problems in our country, 42% believe that people of faith and 46% believe that religion was part of the problem. They rejected the idea that religious individuals could be part of the solution to today's problems in our world and our country. Now, Barna Group President David Kinneman offers a story in his book, Good Faith, which I think encapsulates uh, this sentiment. So while attending a church conference while he was in London, Kinneman was caught in an awkward conversation with a stranger while riding an elevator at his hotel. Have you ever had this experience? You're you're in a closely confined space and someone comes up to you and begins an awkward topic and then you can't escape because the door is closed. Well, that's what happened to him here. The fellow rider of the elevator asked, what kind of event is happening here? And innocently, Kinneman replied, it's a conference for church leaders. Christians are here from all over the world to listen and learn from one another. Well, the stranger offered a very smug reply, which took the conversation in a very different direction. He said this, I have an idea for your Christian conference. Why not hold it in a less expensive place than London and give the money you save to the poor? Well, that's a conversation starter, I guess. Um... Caught off guard, Kinneman tried to explain that the church hosting the conference was in the neighborhood. They had lots of volunteers and places to meet at no cost, and so actually it was less expensive for the conference to be hosted in London than other places. Well, this did not satisfy the middle-aged skeptic. As he exited the elevator on the fourth floor, he grumbled under his breath, whatever, it makes no sense to me. And as the doors closed, Kinneman offered to talk with the man more, but to no avail which was a very dissatisfying end to a bad conversation. Now, many of us probably would have shrugged that off our our shoulders and kept going, um, hoping we never met that man again. However, David Kinneman happened to run into him the next morning during breakfast. Now, many of us, many of us probably would have decided to walk on the other side of the room, go, go and eat our breakfast in peace, but David Kinneman sat down at this man's table, greeted him, and started to eat. And without a beat, the skeptical man picked up the conversation where it ended. He said, did you come up with an answer to my question? Why are you guys here wasting money? And Kinneman, again, tried to explain the reasons and viability for hosting the conference in London when the man angrily cut him off and said this. There is only one good answer, he said. Don't waste your money. Your priorities are screwed up. And as you can imagine, the conversation ended very quickly. Now, I wonder if anyone here has ever been a part of a conversation like that. And so as we enter the last few weeks of our series, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, this story, I think, illustrates the reality that Christians are facing and have to come to terms with. And it's this. We have a perception problem. That secular people tend to think that we're part of the world's problems, not the solution that we're extremists, that we hold antiquated views on salvation and a host of other issues. And more than that, it was once true that people believed the church was a force for good in the world, and now, not so much. 
People think our priorities, as we just learned, are screwed up. A standard critique that is offered is this. If Christianity is true, how can the church be responsible for so much injustice in the world? People, religion, people say, is full of fanatics and hypocrites. The church has a history of supporting injustice. And in fact, there are many, many non-religious people who are more moral than many Christians, people argue. How can this be if Christianity is true? Well, in his work, The Reason for God, Dr. Tim Keller identifies three issues people often point out. And the first one is this. Secular people will point out the glaring character flaws of Christians. It is true that once you say you're a Christian, people are watching you with more scrutiny. But more than that, there is a litany of moral failings and corruption among many church leaders. In fact, just this past year, there were more allegations and reports of abuse amongst the Catholic Church and megachurch pastors. If Christianity claims to be true, shouldn't Christians be better people, is the argument that gets thrown out. Well, it is a fair question, um, but I think it misunderstands a few points. First, Christian theology does teach a concept called common grace, which means that no matter who performs it, every act of goodness, wisdom, and justice and beauty are empowered by God. Additionally, it fails to see that Christians are broken people too. Amen? To grow in character and behavior takes place over time. It is a gradual process after someone becomes a Christian. And so as a result, the church is often filled with imperfect, immature people on a journey towards maturity. Now second, people will argue that religion inevitably leads to violence. Atheist Christopher Hitchens wrote a book famously titled, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And in there, he's got a chapter entitled, Religion Kills which offers examples of religiously-based violence in places like Belfast, Beirut, Bethlehem, and Baghdad. He did mention other B places, but those are the four. I I like the alliteration there. Hitchens argues that religion takes racial and cultural differences and aggravates them. This is what he writes. He says, religion is not unlike racism. One version of it inspires and provokes the other. Religion has been an enormous multiplier of suspicion and hatred. Ouch. While Hitchens makes a fair point, indeed, even Christian nations, sadly, were partly behind atrocities like the Inquisition and the African slave trade, a problem with this argument is that secular countries have done savage things as well. Who can forget the brutality of certain communist governments? The French Revolution, which rejected religion, produced mass violence. And so I would argue, wouldn't it be more reasonable to conclude that violence is something rooted in the sinful human heart and not solely blame it on religion? That's precisely what Christianity teaches. Now finally, the average skeptic may not embrace Christianity because they view Christians as fanatics. Have you ever told someone you were born again, only to have them look at you like a deer in the headlights? Oh, you're one of those. And if you think that's rough, try telling them you're a pastor at a Baptist church. (laughs) However, a fair critique can be offered to those who take the more fanatical approach. I mean, think about somebody you as being fanatical. They can be overbearing, self-righteous, opinionated, insensitive, and harsh. And we might ask, is this the way Christ calls us to interact with the world? Often when we act this way, we wind up doing more harm than good. And so how would you have responded to the man in the opening story today? Would you have been harsh and mocking, 
Or would you have humbly pointed out that Christians indeed are making a difference in this world? In fact, the reason Christianity spread in the first place, according to sociologist Rodney Stark, was largely due to the charity work done by Christians. But today we have a perception problem. And while perception is not reality, we do have to overcome it. Because for many people, it is not enough to simply preach the gospel. We need to show people we care about them in order to break down the barriers to them hearing the good news. Often this requires showing that we are just, not unjust, people. And so we'll cover the topic of justice today in three movements. Number one, our motivation for justice Number two, our response to justification. And number three, we'll see a reversal of the story. For what follows, I am indebted to insights from Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. And so let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much this morning. We thank you for the good work that's going on, not only in NBC, but through Christians around the world, as we heard this morning uh, from our world partners, and as we see in evidenced in, in a... Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes. Lord, I pray this morning that you would stir up our hearts to love and good works. Father, I pray that we would leave this place changed and transformed and motivated for you to get the glory in everything that we do. So soften our hearts this morning, Lord. Help us to see your word with fresh eyes. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So movement one, our motivation for justice. The prophet Micah famously said these words, has, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy, it's the same word, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6.8 is a summary of how God wants us to live. That if we are walking humbly with God, we will, and we want to know him more intimately and be attentive to his desires, this is what we'll do. But the question is, what does it look like? Well, the text tells us we're to do justice and love mercy, which may, at at first glance, seem like two different things. In fact, that term for kindness or mercy is the Hebrew word hesed, which puts an emphasis on on action. I'm sorry, which, which refers to God's unconditional grace and compassion. But the word for justice there is the Hebrew word mishpah, which puts emphasis on action. So mercy is the heart, justice is the action, they go together. Thus, if we're to humbly walk with God, we do justice out of merciful love, is what Micah's saying here. But again, we might ask the question, what is justice? Well, the word mishpah appears over 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, and its basic meaning is this, treat people equitably. When it comes to the law, we should acquit or punish every individual person on the merits of their case. Now, anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. However, many commentators and linguists note that mishpah is more than this. Mishpah is not simply the punishment of wrongdoing, although it is that. It can also be seen positively to give people their rights under the law. In fact, Proverbs 31.9 uses the same word when it says to defend the rights of the poor and needy. Justice, then, can be biblically defined this way, giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. So it's interesting that over and over again in the Old Testament, Mishpah describes the taking up of care of several classes of people, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. And people who are often defined as or denied their rights under the law. In fact, the prophet Zechariah says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. 
Administer true justice and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. Now, these four groups were singled out uh, in pre-modern times basically because they had no social power and were often days away from starvation. They were vulnerable people then, and many times they're vulnerable people now. God's call to do justice requires us to advocate for those who, do not, who cannot advocate for themselves. But often we're not motivated to do this. Why? Well, consider what motivates you to do something. Often we're motivated when something touches our hearts, especially when someone we know is affected. And so scripture offers us several motivations to do justice and to love mercy. The first one I would say is this. All people are made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, you may know it well, says God created man in his own image. God created us in his image. And it begs the question, what does an image mean? The word conveys the idea of being a work of art. Have you ever thought of yourself as a work of art? People are not accidents. They are creations. If you're an, athe- uh, an artist here today, you know that blood, sweat, tears, and time, and talent go into creating a work of art. Whether it's a sermon or a sculpture, a work of art is hard work. And so when God says we're made in the image of God, C.S. Lewis notes in his work, The Weight of Glory, there are no ordinary people. Furthermore, the word means to represent something. In other words, we are made in God's image to represent and resemble him here on earth. As such, every human life is sacred and every human being is, has dignity. In fact, later in the book of Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, God says the reason he considers murder an atrocity is because he's made man in his image. And additionally, in James chapter 3, verse 9 in the New Testament, he talks about the use of the tongue and he says this, with it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God, to which he concludes, this should not be, brothers and sisters. Do not speak poorly of fellow image bearers. Treat them all with equity and respect. And that's a good word for us today. Give people the respect they are due as image bearers of God. That's our first motivation for doing justice. But secondly, I would say we do justice because all of life belongs to God. All of life belongs to God. He's the owner of everything. We are mere stewards God is the creator and author of all things, and that means that everything we have belongs to him. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, where we talked about the image, it also talks about God giving Adam and Eve dominion over creation. That he gave humanity authority over creation, but not ownership. And we would do well to always remember that this world and everything we have is his. And what does that mean? It means that nothing is our own. In other words, all our resources are gifts from the Most High God. And so God calls us to be generous as he is generous. Listen to what David, the wealthiest man in Israel, wrote in 1 Chronicles. He said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatest and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And then he says, but who am I? David. And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. 
We do justice and love mercy because we remember that nothing is ours. Finally, we do justice and love mercy because of God's grace in the cross. And this is the greatest motivation of all, that we were not given the punishment we were due. That because of our sin and rebellion, we should have been the ones nailed to the cross. And so the greatest motivating factor in doing justice and loving mercy is our redemption. And this theme runs throughout Scripture. In fact, if you look at Deuteronomy 10, Moses says this to the people of Israel. He says, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and who accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. See, Moses says, don't forget where you came from, people of God. Stop being stubborn. Don't you remember, O people of God, that I was the one who rescued you when you were slaves in Egypt? Don't you remember how you had nothing and yet I saved you, how you received mercy, now show mercy. Do justice among the fatherless, the widow, and the poor. And you, Christian, may we never forget the cross where God accomplished his love and his justice We were due the penalty of our sin, and God took it for us. Imagine if he didn't. This should be our greatest motivation to help those who are poor and who are outcasts. In fact, Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane says it beautifully to this, answering our heart's objections as we talk about this. He says, now, my dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Objection one, my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where should we have been? Objection two, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said, they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, He left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection three. The poor may abuse it. Answer, Christ might have said the same yea with far greater truth, that Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under his feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sitting more, and yet he gave his own dear blood. Oh, my dear Christians. If you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and poor, to the thankless and undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember this, his own word, it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, we owed a debt we could never pay, but God paid a debt that he didn't know. And now we can humbly walk with our God doing justice, loving mercy. That motivation needs to be pushed deep down in our hearts because we act justly out of gratitude and to give God glory. Because you see, God's grace should make us just people. Many of the criticisms that are leveled against Christians would be mitigated if more Christians remember the cross of Christ in their dealings with others. We don't deserve to live and yet we do. 
We deserved hell, as we learned last week, and yet we got heaven. And that reality informs our response, our response to our justification. Our response to justification, because you see, if it would have been just for us to die on the cross, as God had to punish sin. Through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, justice was served, blood was spilt, and so the doctrine of justification that on the cross God accomplished justice for us will produce a response in the heart of genuine believers. Doing justice in our world is a response to justification. In fact, scholar N.T. Wright astutely points out that in modern times, the atonement of Christ is separated from the work of the kingdom of God. In other words, the cross is thought of as dealing with individual salvation, and the kingdom is thought of as dealing with the work of service and charity. But the kingdom and the cross go together. And so Wright asserts this. He says, the point of the atonement ought to do with the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. That when Jesus came, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. It's what theologians call the already but not yet nature of the kingdom. That the kingdom is here. A future kingdom is coming, yes. But in the here and now, how we live matters. And so the sad reality is this. Liberal churches often focus on the kingdom, but don't see the point of the cross. And conservative churches focus on the atonement, but don't recognize its connection with kingdom work. We often miss that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so N.T. Wright concludes, our vision of social ethics and our vision of atonement have cruelly detached from one another. And what's he saying? He's saying our justification should be the main motivation for doing justice in this world. We should give mercy because we've received mercy. But like the nation of Israel, we quickly forget what God has done and we start to worship other things. I know I do. The idols that get lodged in our hearts blind us to the injustice around us. Things like materialism, our our need for safety, selfishness, even our religious activities can blind us to the plight of the poor and the destitute in this world. And when this happens, we leave ourselves open to criticism from a watching world. These are the very things the prophet Amos was speaking against in chapter 5 of his book. He says this, God speaking here, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Now, let me state the obvious. That's some pretty harsh language. I despise your religious festivals, God says. Your assemblies stink. They're a stench to me. God says his people are to bring him offerings, but he won't accept them. And he says they're singing songs to him, and he won't listen to their worship. Why? Uh, Isn't God always pleased with our worship? I mean, just picture what's being described here. The people of Israel have gone all out to worship God. They they put together a great worship service with awesome music and lots of of things. In fact, the price tag for this among his people was probably pretty hefty. And God says this. He says, I hate, I, I despise, I take no delight, I will not accept, I will not look upon. Take the noise of your worship away 
from me and the people of Israel probably would have been shocked. Why? We did this for you, God. But God looks at them and says, no, you did this for yourselves. You did it so you can look good and you missed the point. And what is the point? Verse 24, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-ending stream, never-failing stream. Now notice that word but there. Israel did all these other things to worship God, but, but they missed justice. They missed righteousness. Justice should roll like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. But what does that mean? Well, again, the word for justice here is, you guessed it, the word mishpah. Again, it is a word that involved the treatment of other people. And so justice, again, therefore, is the right behavior in relationship with others, whereby they taste and they experience what is good and pleasant. And so, therefore, God is saying, you put on a great show, church, but you haven't treated other people well. And in Amos' context, that particularly meant the poor. You have spent all this wealth on yourselves, and people are starving. And if you go back to chapter 5, verse 15 of Amos, he states that loving good leads to the establishment of justice. Commentator J.A. Macher observes this. He says, the good man wants to do good for his neighbors as a guaranteed element of social life. And equally, his hatred of evil means that he wants society to guarantee the purging out of evil through the due process of law. In other words, we should desire good for our neighbors. The prophet Jeremiah said it this way, Seek the welfare of the city in which I have sent you into exile, for in its welfare you will find welfare. And so justice is the action, but righteousness is the heart connection. Again, justice is outward, righteousness is inward. It's the Hebrew word tanakh which is primarily about being in right relationship with God. And so here's the truth. If our hearts are right with God, if we are walking humbly with him, what will be the result? Acting justly towards those around us. And so what Amos is saying is this, to sum it up. He's saying there should be an abundance of justice in your lives flowing in perpetuity. Because there is not, your worship is fake. It is a game you are playing. It is not that I want you to give up your worship service, but I want your worship and your action to be wed. Remember what I did for you in Egypt. Live in response to that rescue. And so a natural question for us this morning, church, is how are we living in response to our own rescue? Are we spending all our resources on ourselves and not giving generously to others? Are we guilty of the same thing as the people of Israel? So we should take time to examine our hearts. And one question should always be on our hearts. How can I be generous? Well, justice certainly, again, includes the punishment of wrongdoing. It also encompasses a call to be merciful and compassionate to those who are less fortunate. So how can I be generous? You may remember a scene in Acts chapter 2 describing the early church where it talks about uh, the church as being together, where the apostles were teaching, where they were breaking bread, where they were uh, seeing miracles being performed. In fact, I imagine it was a pretty cool time to be alive. But then Luke records a very interesting detail in chapter 2 verse 44, and he says this, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
Now, that's an interesting picture. They had all things for common, and people were willing to sell their possessions and sell the proceeds to the needy for the needy among them. Now, there's many churches who have tried to live this out, and I recognize here there's many complexities to this, many different ideas about what that looks like. But I would simply suggest that maybe we could ask the question, how can I be generous? What would it look for us to be generous? The Apostle Paul goes a step further in his letter to the Galatian church at the end of the section where he speaks about how believers should share one another's burdens. In chapter 6 of Galatians, Paul writes this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Did you catch that? He says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Now, while the last clause here indicates a prioritization of those in the church, there does seem to be some kind of indication that this at some level extends beyond the church. In other words, how can I be generous to those around me? How can I be a person who does good to everyone? And again, I recognize this requires wisdom and discernment, but our heart motivation, again, should be generosity, And so I want to pause for a second here and just recognize that we have a very generous body here at NBC. So many give of their time, of their talents, and their treasure to further the kingdom work at NBC and beyond. Thank you for your generous hearts. We need people who are generous. Because when the watching world sees a generous church, not just with the household of faith, but with the community, they recognize there's something different. When the world sees us doing justice and loving mercy, it can melt the heart of the most ardent skeptic. In fact, it leads to our third point and final point, a reversal of the story. A reversal of the story. Because as we discussed at the beginning, we have a perception problem, so let's change the narrative. Let's reverse the story and show the world what it looks like to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Because by doing justice in our world, we reflect the character of a just God. And since our stories have been reversed by the mercy of the cross, let's be people who reverse other people's stories as well. Let's be people who are givers. In fact, those were the last words of Paul when he spoke to the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. Listen to what he says in verse 35. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so let's just pause and recognize that it's striking here. That's the last thing Paul said to these elders. He could have said a lot of things. He was probably never going to see them again. He didn't see them again. But these are the last words he recorded. He says, help the weak, give. And by doing so, you may be able to reverse someone's story. Now, there's obvious stories of injustice that we read about in books and we hear about on the news, but... Some of us in here are saying, many of us in here may be saying, well, how do I do justice and love mercy where I live? Well, now, I would suggest three things, just as a way of application here. I think we should always ask, how can I do justice? That when it comes to application, only you know your context best. But if you're daily asking questions like, how can I be generous? How can I do justice? Eventually, you're going to find ways to do those things, and you're going to come back to me with stories and say, Pastor Bob, guess, guess how I did justice this week. Guess how I was generous with somebody this week. Here's an example of somebody who decided to help others, to use their, use their, use their, their position to be generous. 
Sweatshops in Southeast Asia crank out many of the name brand clothes that you and I wear every day. Sadly, many of these clothes are made by poorly paid and sometimes abused workers. How should Christians in America respond? Should we boycott these companies? Well, global missions expert Paul Borthwick posed those questions to a friend of his from Sri Lanka, and his friend discouraged boycotting the big clothing companies, but gave this advice instead. This is just an example. He says, tell people, especially your business people, to become executives for Nike and other multinational corporations that run these factories. And in positions of leadership, they can bring a Christian influence of compassion and justice and mercy in that environment. They can make rules of how the factory workers are treated, and that can turn a whole village toward the gospel. And so Borthwick shares what happens, happened months later. He says, I shared this response with a church in New York City, and uh, one fellow approached me and said, that's a great idea. I'm the representative buyer with a factory we have in Madagascar. That's why I buy jeans from that factory. I sell them on Fifth Avenue. We buy jeans for a dollar, and we sell them for $400. Maybe we can do something. He contacted the factory liaison in Madagascar and asked how much it would cost if the factory started paying for the school fees for the children's workers, maybe better housing, health care, improved sanitation, more reasonable hours. And the buyer was pursuing compassion for these workers. And so the buyer got a message back from the liaison representing the factory management. He said that they were sorry, but such added benefits would quadruple the price for the jeans to $4 a pair. Well, the buyer decided to do it anyway thus making for a smaller but still very good profit margin on the jeans. A Christian used his position of power to help bring compassion and justice for the poor. He was leveraging his position for the poor. Just an example. Number two, know the needs of your community. Now, the only way you can truly know how to serve your community is to know your community, and that will look differently in Basking Ridge than it will in Newark. There are needs in both places. Here at NBC, we are actively trying to know the needs of our church and local community so we can do justice and love mercy well. And so we have a care leadership team who, who keeps track of the needs within our church body. We have a benevolence team that helps folks with financial needs. We have a Stephen ministry team that helps people with emotional and spiritual needs. In fact, if you want to serve the broader community through the church, I would encourage you to serve with, with our partners like the Relief Bus in Newark or, or Market Street Mission in Morristown or, or Feeding Hands Food Pantry in Somerville. And there's many opportunities. Those places in particular I've served at, and it's just amazing the people you meet, the stories you hear, and the relationships that can be built. There are many opportunities to do justice and to love mercy with our church body but also look for ways to help others in your spheres of influence. Finally and thirdly, be committed when you're doing this. Because reforming someone's life and reforming communities takes time. The reality is that once you get involved in someone's life, practical needs will manifest. And this can be challenging for many people, but my, but my exhortation is to be committed. Doing justice and loving mercy are not easy, but they are worth it. They help build the kingdom. And when you help someone who is hurting physically and emotionally, they may be more willing to listen spiritually. I've shared here before that I grew up with a single mother. My father passed away when I was 10 years old, and quite literally, we became, overnight, one of those Old Testament categories of people who require justice and mercy. That growing up without a father was hard, raising kids without a spouse even more difficult. 
And so I clung to passages that reminded me that God is a father of the fatherless and a defender of widows. That God was my father, but I also was thankful for men and women of faith and families who took seriously the call to do justice and love mercy in our lives. To live out the call of God so that we could be cared for, so that we could taste and experience the grace of God in our lives. You see, many people argue that the church is responsible for injustice. And to that, I would respond, well, you missed all the good things the church has done. What about all the mercy and justice that has been displayed in the church? Church, let's change that perception. Let's change that story. Let's be different so that when people look at us, they will taste and see the goodness, the mercy, and the just character of our God. May they see people who have been changed by grace, who are doing justice, who are loving mercy, and who are walking humbly with our God. We want to be a church that engages in both gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration. That sinners need to be called to repentance, yes, and we should advocate for the poor and the outcast. The degree, to, the degree we do this will be reflective of whether or not the grace of God has made us just. Because all of this, of course, is a matter of how the gospel has affected our hearts. How deep is the gospel in my heart How deep is the gospel in your heart? That if you're just religiously going through the motions of attending church and going to Bible study, the gospel may not be gripping your heart in a deep way. Because when we realize that we've been saved by sheer grace and not our own efforts, our response is gratitude. Our response is to be generous as God was generous with us. In fact, this is is seen in how we treat those who are less fortunate than us. Uh, Jesus himself said this in Matthew 25. He says, For when I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now Jesus' words here are, yes, a call to how we treat the poor, but they are also a reminder of the gospel of grace. They are a reminder that Jesus went, what Jesus went through on the cross, because on the cross, Jesus was hungry and thirsty. On the cross, Jesus became an outcast for us. On the cross, Jesus was naked and bleeding, and when, and how we, when we see the poor, we are reminded that our Savior, though he was rich, became poor for us. John Stott once said this, I could never myself believe in a God if it were not for the cross. Because in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? Let me invite the worship team to come back on stage. There's one more song they're going to do. And as they do, let me close with a, a story from the end of Generous Justice where Tim Keller shares this. He says, some years ago, I heard a man relate the experience of a wealthy older woman that he knew once. She had never married and had no children to serve as heirs. She had only one close relative, a nephew, who hoped to inherit her money. He had always been gracious and attentive in her presence, 
But she had heard things from others that made her doubt her impression. The disposal of her wealth was no small matter, and so she had to be sure that the person who received it would use it wisely and generously. And so one day she took matters into her own hands, and she dressed in tattered clothes, appearing to be homeless, and lay on the steps of his urban townhouse. And when he came out, he cursed at her and told her to leave or he would call the police. And so she knew that what his heart was really like, that his response to the poor woman revealed his true nature. What is in our hearts, church? Has God's grace gripped our hearts deeply enough that we will do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God? I pray it does. Amen? Let me pray for us.